an incredibly strong exit market, high valuations, and a highly competitive market for venture capital deals help drive venture capital funding in the U.S. through the roof in the first quarter of 21. Will that continue in the second quarter of 21? We'll discuss on In the Know. I'm Justin Domini. Venture capital investments in the U.S. hit new records in Q1 of 21, driven by a strong exit market, high valuations, and a flood of SPACs. In addition, optimism around the vaccine rollout has turned investors to long-term, new normal opportunities. These were just some of the key findings in KPMG's Q1 21 Venture Pulse report just released. Private enterprise leader Connor Moore and Silicon Valley private enterprise leader Shivani Sapori sat down to discuss the report's findings, the trends they're seeing, and how the market is changing as a result of the vaccine rollout across the country. They discussed just how they see the venture capital market as we enter the second quarter. Here's that conversation. Connor, thanks for joining us today to talk about this. I guess we just jump right in. You know, one of the things I noticed when we were going through the Venture Pulse one report is that there was a significant increase in the number of stocks that continue to get investments. And I think you're probably seeing the same thing that I was seeing, which is, you know, I'm getting calls constantly from companies either looking to enter into a SPAC transaction or different SPACs actually looking to get audited as they've managed to get funding in the upcoming period of time. That would seem to indicate that we'll get a lot more companies going public by us back in the next one to two years. Do you think this is going to be an important exit option in the future? Or how do you see that compared to the rest of the market? Yeah, thanks, Shivani. Great to be here. And yeah, it definitely was quite the phenomenon in the first quarter. And to answer your question, I do see it continuing. I mean, it is interesting. You know, I remember five, 10 years ago, and the whole concept of a SPAC was something that a lot of people kind of shied away from. It was kind of viewed to be a B or C level way to go public. But now, as you point out, I mean, I think that somebody had told me there was 400 new SPACs that were formed in January, February of 2021 alone. So we literally have hundreds of SPACs chasing target companies. And as you know, each of those SPACs is a limited window within which to consummate one of these transactions. So I think it will continue for a period of time. You know, at some point in time, there may be a little bit of a desperation on the part of the SPACs that haven't found the target company and then the target company that hasn't found a SPAC. And we may get some suboptimal deals, but I think we're a long way away from that right now. And actually, it's not a huge sample size, but if you look at the companies that have gone public via a SPAC and are now actually trading public companies, for the most part, they've done reasonably well because any type of trend where SPAC-related IPOs perform in a kind of worse fashion to traditional IPOs, that's when you're probably going to see a slowdown in that as an exit option. But I think they're here to stay for some period of time. Mm -hmm. Now, just about a week ago, the SEC seems to have turned their focus to these SPACs, whereas I don't think we saw a lot of commentary coming from the SEC on these transactions. They did make a blanket statement about the accounting specifically for the warrants being incorrect in many cases for these past transactions. And now it does seem to be an industry-wide issue, not targeted at any one firm or one SPAC. But can you speak a little bit more about the issue and the implications of it on these companies going public via SPAC in the upcoming months? Yes. And actually, even before getting into the specifics, I think it is the beginning of something with the SEC. I would not expect it to be the last commentary from the SEC on these SPAC transactions. I think they're just getting their arms around them and different flavors of them. And, you know, there could be future 
accounting pronouncements from them, governance pronouncements, et cetera. Now, with respect to the one that they commented on last week, you're right. There was an industry-wide practice where certain warrants that were issued as part of these SPAC transactions got a certain accounting treatment, which simplistically speaking, just meant they did not have to be revalued periodically. All the firms took that view. The SEC has taken a different view to that. So what we're likely to see here in the short term are a number of restatements where these warrants will be revalued. The reason I think there will be a fair number of restatements is because these warrants are probably worth quite a lot with some of these companies because they're high growth companies, high value companies, and that valuation increase will be taken through the income statement. It's unfortunate because we are already dealing with a market that all the service providers, lawyers, accountants, et cetera, are somewhat stretched in this current environment. And now many of them are going to have to devote their attentions to doing these restatements, et cetera, which is only going to exacerbate the tightness of resources. It's definitely not a projection of sorts, but I do know a lot of companies are also looking at whether or not the warrants are things that need to go into these transactions on an ongoing basis. So I'm sure that's going to be another thing that comes up as more information kind of develops of these facts on these types of transactions. Yeah, you're right. Even a CFO that I was talking to on Friday, and he's not going to be beset by this problem anyway, because he's still kind of exploring his spag. But I mean, he was saying, yes, he's already talked to people about how these things may be structured differently going forward so that they don't actually fall afoul of this new accounting guidance. So yeah, it's definitely in a market that's adapting almost on a daily basis. Yeah, I can also imagine this might take a little bit longer for companies to end up closing some transactions too, just if a number of the SPACs are actually dealing with restatements that would seem to push out some of the windows. Yeah, that's a SPAC sort of phenomenon in general, like a particular SPAC who may be chasing three or four target companies, each of which they may view to have similar economics, valuations, outcomes. And honestly, I think ability to execute, ability to get a deal done in a shorter period of time is kind of a tiebreaker for many of these SPACs. So if one of them has a restatement to deal with and two of them don't, then that one may very easily be eliminated as a result of what happened last week. So it'll cause people to make some decisions. Now, switching topics a little bit to one of the other things that I think we were noticing is just the impact of COVID-19. It's obviously been one of the biggest topics for this past year. And now on the news, we're hearing about everyone being able to get access to a vaccine in the next month or so. And I know for like me personally, I want to go out and eat at restaurants. And for my family members that have little kids going to school, they're all looking forward to being back in school and not doing remote learning. So, you know, these are all positive things, but the pandemic did bring a focus on some of these industries like food delivery, ed tech, commerce, fintech, and a bunch of others. And are we going to continue to see heavy investments or is the pandemic way of life not going to be the new normal? Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating. I think you will have different ends of the spectrum. So like you brought up, every parent is dying for their kid to go back to school, not just to get out of the house, but just to sort of have that fully rounded education experience. So you kind of do wonder a little bit about ed tech companies that have grown up in this pandemic and kind of have exploded. Does that growth temper a little bit, particularly in the sort of middle school, high school arena? Now, the flip side of that discussion may be when you look at college education and the ability for folks to get a college education online, and that has been something we had seen even pre-COVID, but maybe that it gets even further accelerated when we come out of COVID and people who just can't physically go to a particular campus can avail themselves of that and that becomes a new normal. But then I think you've got other things that we all now do out of necessity because we were locked out at home for 12 months and 
you know, I know around our house, there are certain things like, oh, I don't know why we haven't been doing that for the last three or four years. It's just more convenient. You know, some of the delivery stuff, not necessarily the food thing. I do think people will rush back to restaurants. There won't be as much food delivery stuff. And the other kind of category of all this is what's going to happen with the workforce, right? So when you think about restaurants and you take downtown San Francisco, for example, how many people are going to be back in downtown San Francisco five days a week? It would seem to be a lot smaller number than were there 14, 15 months ago. So restaurants in downtown San Francisco, do they suffer versus neighborhood restaurants where people are working at home? You know, maybe their business picks up. So I think it's going to be fascinating. I would think anybody who's got a solution around working from home, that solution will continue to grow in the new normal. Because I think there will be a meaningful percentage of people who will not be going back to work five days a week. Are we seeing shifts in the level of VC investments that are going to these, I guess, pandemic-specific industries so far? Yes. I mean, I think in early days, there was a lot around the work from home, the companies that were selling into that space, be it video conferencing, file sharing, collaboration, all those types of companies, other avenues that were brought on, not necessarily by convenience, but again, by necessity. Like obviously everybody went through a hard time financially through this. So many of the fintech companies that, for example, would allow you to access your salary and your compensation as you earned it, as opposed to waiting for the biweekly or weekly paycheck, those companies, you know, again, I think that is something that will continue in the new normal. So a lot of the VC investment, I think, has been geared towards not just quick hits, not companies that were only going to benefit during COVID, but the ones that were also going to see some benefit later on. And then there's also the broad investment sector of life sciences and clearly how the U.S. and other countries dealt with COVID exposed certain weaknesses in our whole life sciences, healthcare ecosystem. And I think that's going to continue to be a hot area for investment moving forward. Yeah, you know, among my clientele, I think the other thing that the pandemic brought on was a renewed focus on internal matters. So looking at more automation efficiency, especially since there wasn't a lot of ability to do external marketing and to pull in a lot of new customers over the past year. So I did see in the report that artificial intelligence companies did see an increase in funding. Are there any other industries that we saw with continued increase in funding? And why do you think that is? Well, yeah, definitely. I think that the AI thing will continue, both in terms of companies who are looking to be more efficient. And then if you just think of the just geometric explosion of data that so many companies have gotten, given that everyone's had to go digital over the last 13 or 15 months, that's going to accelerate everything in that particular space. You know, one area that is going to be interesting, I think, is health tech. So there's what I'll call the Peloton phenomenon, like everybody was going out and buying exercise machines. Nobody could go to the gym. Every couple of weeks, it seems like there's a nine-figure investment into some kind of health tech, personalized fitness, personalized health company. And I don't see any reason why that's not going to continue post-COVID, too. Switching focus again, let's look at the venture funding. So the past year, I would say, has been a phenomenal year for unicorns. But this past quarter especially, I think the number was close to 64 unicorns in this past quarter alone have been funded. So that would be the biggest quarter yet. And the deal sizes for some of these have been truly massive, with numbers being upwards of like a $1 billion funding rounds for these companies. So what exactly do you think is causing this and what do you expect to continue? You know, there just continues to be a ton of capital out there looking for a home, looking for investments. And you couple that with a pretty strong stock market where exits are proving to be 
significantly valuable. Like I think in their Venture Pulse report that we just published, we just went through the quarter with the highest exit value in history, companies going public, getting acquired, et cetera. So you add those two things together, supply of capital, a favorable exit market, then you're going to continue to have the rounds that you're talking about. You're going to continue to have the unicorns. I know of companies who simply did a round in order to get unicorn status. They didn't even need the money. The economics were right, and now they can call themselves a unicorn. So I think that will continue unless one of those two things changes, i.e. significant reduction in available capital, which I don't see happening in the near term, or a significant degradation in the exit markets, which I don't necessarily see happening in the short term either. What I do think it's created, though, is kind of a bias towards those late stage deals. So your Series C and your Series D versus your earlier stage investments. So the very early stage companies are perhaps, you know, maybe struggling is too strong a word, but I think we've seen a trend where investment in those companies is actually reducing over time. And I think it's just because the risk profile of those companies is so much greater than these later stage ones. So if I've got a lower risk option over here with a strong exit market, why would I not do that versus the early stage? And that's probably likely to continue in the short term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you make a good point because I didn't really think about it at the time, but years ago, there was always a question as to whether or not these unicorns would be able to exit at the multiple that they're trying to exit at. And that's definitely been dispelled over the last year or two. All the unicorns, or at least a vast majority of them, have been able to exit at a decent multiple from where their previous rounds were at. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, continue to trade at those higher valuations. I mean, there's ones and twosies exceptions, but for the most part, they continue to trade at pretty good valuations. Since we're on the topic of exits, I guess one of the other things that was interesting to see is the number of direct listings that have occurred over the past, not just this quarter, but even at the tail end in Q4 of 2020. I think if you compare year over year, there's more than twice as many companies that have gone public via direct listing compared to the previous year. I'm sure that the New York Stock Exchange allowing companies to raise funds via direct listing has made that route more viable for companies. But do you think this is the new norm? And are we going to see companies take a different route to going public than a normal IPO path? Yeah, I mean, I would think that's the case. I mean, you and I worked on one a couple of years ago, and at that point in time, it was only the second one. And now, to your point, there's a multitude of them. It's definitely a more viable option now that there is the ability for one to raise money into the company as opposed to just getting raised for selling shareholders. And also, I think there's some logic that it will probably become more commonplace because of these later stage funding rounds. You have more and more of these companies that actually don't need to go public in order to raise money. They have plenty of money. So perhaps a direct listing is a more preferable route for them to go down. They want to go public because there's a whole bunch of things that are positive about going public, but they don't necessarily want to take the dilution that comes along with that because perhaps they've just done a big round in the last 12 months. So I think they're definitely here to stay. Well, thank you so much for the time, Connor. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Shivani. This has been great. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. To connect with a KPMG private enterprise advisor in your region, please email enterprise at kpmg.com. That's enterprise at kpmg.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on In the Know.